This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Everything that Richard, myself, and our Christmas guest co-host, Paul Griffiths, the CEO of Dubai Airports, have been up to on Thursday, the 28th of December. There is, by the way, a special Paul Griffiths podcast if you want to listen to our extended conversation with him about his career and his thoughts on a number of the issues of the aviation news of the day. But we've been looking to the seas, actually, this morning because big developments when it comes to who is or rather isn't shipping through the Red Sea. More on that in the podcast this morning. We've been looking at an announcement for the Dubai media sector, the government looking to double its contribution to GDP. We've been speaking to Mazen Nawahi, who's the founder and CEO of Karma, about that and about New York Times suing OpenAI and Microsoft for using New York Times content to populate and train its generative AI model. Billions of dollars at stake there. We've also been looking at one of our other big stories of the day, a government-backed initiative to get a 1,000 UAE nationals into the private education sector every year. Sean Robeson is CEO of BBD Education. We've been getting his take on that this morning. And we've been looking at the outlook for gold and oil with the Chief Revenue Officer of CPT Markets. You're listening to The Business Breakfast, where Rich and I have another Christmas uh, guest co-host with us, a CGC, our third of the short week. We've also got a surprising amount of news to get our teeth into this morning. Yeah, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with the Red Sea and the developments there? Yeah, absolutely. We're going to have a bit more on this tomorrow as well. It's a story that is running and running. Uh, ship's supposed to go back. Ship's not going back. This is Hapag Lloyd, one of the world's biggest shipping companies. And yesterday they said they were going to decide whether to resume shipping to or through the Red Sea. And the decision was no. Perhaps surprising because the day before, Maersk, one of their large international competitors, did decide to resume shipping in the Red Sea. They said they were satisfied with this new naval task force that was going to protect shipping. But Hapag Lloyd said, no, it's too dangerous. Let's hear from the chief executive now. He is Rolf Jansen. This is him speaking a couple of days ago, or rather late last week, about the fact that rerouting ships around the southern tip of Africa at the Cape of Good Hope is extremely time consuming. It depends, of course, a little bit where they have to go uh, because if they come directly from Asia and have to go to the US on the East Coast for example it's about a week to 10 days extra the same goes for uh, North continent Europe but of course especially if ships have to go to the Met or to Turkey for example uh, we talk about a huge detour that's Ralph Janssen of Hapag Lloyd not yet for them in terms of resuming shipping have we seen a tick up in air freight Paul as a result of what's happening in the air sea what's the lag on that little bit too early to say. I think that people will obviously be shipping um, things by air if there are severe delays. I don't know how long this is going to go on, but I think most people are being told that it's just going to take a bit longer and cost a bit more to ship things by sea. One of the other big stories that we're looking at this morning, the New York Times versus OpenAI. Do we think that Microsoft and ChatGPT, OpenAI, have got an actual lawyer or do you think they are relying on generative AI to do this one for them? <laughs> That's a very good point. I am pretty sure that they are well tooled up when it comes to lawyers at the moment. So the New York Times one of the first very high-profile news media outlets to go to war with OpenAI and Microsoft with a lawsuit in the Southern District of 
New York. And you've looked at the statement, as have I, the Times saying that while it recognises the power and potential of generative AI for the public and journalism, it says that journalistic material should be used for commercial gain with permission from the original source. And it says, just to recap, these tools were built with and continue to use independent journalism and content that is only available because we and our peers reported, edited and fact-checked it at high cost and with considerable expertise. And it says that OpenAI, which of course Microsoft is a major shareholder in, are in some instances doing not a lot of editing when it comes to New York Times content. In fact, they gave numerous examples in the lawsuit of instances where GPT-4 produced altered versions of material published by the New York Times. They show, for example, one example, open AI software producing almost identical text to a New York Times article about predatory lending practices in the New York City taxi industry. They say it was almost identical, but it's not just that there is plagiarism that they are being accused of, but also, crucially, leaving out some important context. They say the GPT-4 version excludes a critical piece of context about the sum of money that New York made by selling taxi medallions and collecting taxes on private sales. So they say there's a copyright angle, but also there's an accuracy angle. Which is very interesting indeed. And they're going after billions, isn't it? I mean, the size of this lawsuit is the other thing that's particularly interesting here. Billions of dollars in damages. It's a huge amount of money because they also say it impacts the revenue model on a number of different levels. For example, if someone's searching for a story, they would normally go to the original, which would be the New York Times. And if that is a review of a hotel or the latest gadget, whatever it may be, a book, and there's a lot of reviews on the New York Times, there's a link then to buy the aforementioned hotel, book, whatever it may be. And the New York Times, like other media organisations, will get a small cut of that. It's not the main source of revenue for organisations like the Times, but it is there. And they say if people are going to a GPT-generated version of essentially the same review, then they're going to miss out on that revenue. So there's lots of different ways that they say it's impacting their revenue, their business model. OK, well, you've had one expert on this already this morning. Mazen Nahawi is with Karma. It's a Dubai-based media organisation, perhaps not a household name, but it's a big organisation. In very simple terms, it does media monitoring for the public relations industry. So it monitors the media, but it does an awful lot more than that. So it serves the, for example, public relations and uh, communications industry. They employ more than a thousand people worldwide. So it's a significant organisation. And Mazen is an advisor on Zayed University's uh, media board, also a board member of the Middle East Public Relations Association. So Mazen is at the heart of this. We've been speaking to him about New York Times versus OpenAI. This was Mazen's take. Others are already in. They've been sued by all kinds of artists and publishers in Europe. The European Union is all over this already. I think it's a very, very big story. Uh, publishers do have a right to get paid for their content, but they also have a responsibility to make their content available. In Europe and in Asia, they've done a very good job at creating very good licensing bodies, but in places like the Middle East and in America, they haven't. So the more accessible the content, the better the partnership can be. Paul Griffiths has been looking at this. You've been looking at AI generally, partly in terms of the media industry, because you're a big consumer and user of the media industries at Dubai Airport, but also AI in the back office at the airport. Give us your take. Well, I think it's absolutely fascinating. We probably haven't scratched the surface of the influence that it's going to have. And I think the business model needs to mature because clearly the 
content of, of um, AI generated information has a source from somewhere. And if that does lead to sales, perhaps it's the AI engines themselves that need to adopt that model going forward. But we've used it in an enormous number of ways. And I used it uh, just before the holiday season when I gave a presentation about the future of transportation. And a lot of the images and statistics that I use were generated by our design team using AI models, including some caricatures of my good self, which were you know, generated using an image generation uh, machine, which was just quite incredible, really. So it brought life to the story. So it's going to be transformative in so many areas. And I think, actually, the virtue of technology, hopefully, will overcome any perceived disadvantages. I think our lives, hopefully, will be enriched by it, not uh, threatened by it. I have to say, this is a man who, in the ad breaks this morning, has been planning the Christmas dinner that he's cooking for 13 people tonight using a spreadsheet. That's absolutely right. And transmitting it so that the shopping will be there by the time I get home and put my chef's apron on, hopefully. You have to explain to me. I mean, I'm not a big Excel person anyway, but how on earth are you using an Excel spreadsheet to plot dinner? Oh, it's fascinating. You put all the recipe in. And then what you do is all the dishes you're going to cook and then in the top left corner you put the number of guests and it tells you exactly the right quantities of every single thing you need to buy. I then print out the list, send it, well I don't print it, I send it to uh, the people doing the shopping for me and they come back with everything I need and then all I have to do is cook it. Okay, I'm so glad by the looks around the studio that I'm not the only one going, really, what? <laughs> What is this magical cooking voodoo of which you speak? <laughs> well, it's something I've practiced over time. I'm afraid my recipe is fairly predictable because I, you know, I cook turkey, I cook the rack of lamb, I cook the beef, I do the Yorkshire puddings. And if anyone goes anywhere near the oven whilst those Yorkshires are in, they'll get their hands cut off by me. It's just something that in our family we've always loved to do. And we're going to guess you're slightly details orientated, the fact that it is planned. I mean, what if someone's not really likes potatoes? Are you adjusting for taste in this? Oh, absolutely. Yes, we've got people with some dietary requirements coming. So I've adjusted the recipe for that. I've made sure that we've got, you know, alternatives. I'm doing a nice cauliflower cheese, which uh, is always a favourite. There's never any of that left at the end of the meal. And somehow in the midst of all of this, this man has time to run the world's busiest international airport. We are extremely lucky to have him with us this morning because it is the busy period. Christmas, New Year's, of course, the uh, the holiday. Quarter of a million people a day, you were saying? That's right. Over the uh, 16 days from the 15th to the 31st of December, 4.4 million people have come through DXP. And 13 of them will be having dinner at Paul's tonight. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Looking into one of our other big stories this morning, and that is the new government-backed scheme to get 1,000 Emiratis a year into the private education sector. Very pleased to be joined by school's boss, Sean Robeson, who's the CEO of BBD Education. Sean, good morning. Good morning. Great to be back. What do you make of the idea? Um, I really like the idea because I think... For the past 15 years, we've constantly talked about this teacher recruitment crisis within the private sector. I think every principal in, in the UAE has spoken about this issue as an annual problem and not being able to find um, the talent. Well, if, if the private sector is dependent upon another country's uh, teacher training system, 
um, and teacher training numbers are down across the UK and across the US, then it makes sense to um, develop and train a, a workforce here in the country. So I think it's a huge opportunity for, for school operators um, to, to, to grow a workforce here in the country. All right. How easy is it to recruit Emirati teaching staff? We'll stay away from the admin staff for the moment, but those on the actual education side at the moment. Um, so I think this year um, the numbers have actually been quite um, quite significant from the higher colleges of technology. I know there was a, a very large supply of um, early years and primary school teachers yet to be placed into private schools this year. So I think this announcement has come off the back of that. To be cynical about the sector, why does it take a government quota to get more Emirati teachers into schools? So I think education as a as a profession um, is is quite often seen um, as low paid. Um, it's quite it's not as as glossy as perhaps other private sector professions. So that's the same in in all countries. It's no different in the UAE. So I think finding that workforce who are attracted to the profession, not for financial reasons, but perhaps for vocational or, or personal passion reasons, is is a challenge. Could we see teaching wages rise as a result of this? Um, I think teaching wages will will rise in line with any kind of school fee um, increase. So I think there is an incentive there for school operators. If if um, if I'm, I'm not I'm, I'm speculating here, but if school fees are tagged to amortisation some way or quality in some way, it might incentivise uh, schools to put the salaries up. Interesting thought. How have you done so far in BBD? Talk to me about your Emirati workforce. Yeah, so we, we've got Emiratis um, in admin positions across some of our schools. Um, we have a very, very small percentage of Emirati teachers. Um, I'm not going to uh, beat around the bush there, but we did um, start an initial conversation back in June with the higher colleges of technology to actually try and target this and to place Emirati teachers in our schools. Okay, so from your own experience then, uh, why hasn't that been a, uh, a larger focus and why hasn't that number grown already? Yeah, I think, you know, again, coming back to the salaries, uh, coming back to the fact that most school salaries here in the UAE are, t- are tagged to um, school fees. So when you operate mid-market schools or low-fee schools, you know, at 10,000 dirhams, 15,000 dirhams, you're often looking at salaries at the, that are at the lower end of the profession compared to the premium schools. And I think the vast majority of schools in the UAE are actually mid-market or low-fee schools. I think the average school fee uh, tuition range in Dubai is, is thirty to 35,000 dirhams. You are going to be bringing a school, though, that's going to be at the expensive end into the country, Gordonston. That is correct. And obviously, whatever amortisation targets are there, we will fall in line with that. Are you already having discussions about that? Um, it's very early days. I mean, at the moment, the school is just is just getting started with the school design. Um, so it's very early days when it comes to staffing. Staffing comes probably in the in phase two of the pre-operations. What do we need to put in place in terms of infrastructure, teacher training institutes and the rest of it? Yeah, so I, in my previous role, uh, way back in 2008, we used to train a lot of Emirati teachers across uh, 45 um, public sector uh, schools in Abu Dhabi. And every year from 2008 to 2014, we would uh, send Emirati principals and Emirati teachers to the UK for a month to shadow principals and teachers in the UK. And they would get a real cultural experience as well as a a pedagogical experience working with schools. And I just hope that the, the current initiative with the higher education institutes includes that as part of the training. Well, as luck would have it, we happen to have the recently appointed chairman of <coughs> Dubai College, um, one of Dubai's oldest and best known schools, and I'm going to say not one of its cheapest, in the studio with us, Paul Griffiths. Yes, indeed. Yes, I've been chairman now for just under a year. So what do you make of this move and where do you see the challenges as well as the ops? 
I think it's a very good move because I think the future of the UAE depends on the excellence of its education system and actually having that as a properly interwoven international and indigenous enterprise is essential for the future and it's something I'm sure DC will embrace um, as we move forward with our goal of excellence in education and uh, more relevance to the local market. Sean, how do we make sure that this quota, um, the this this thousand job placements a year, is actually on the education side and not just in Edmund Rolls? Um, well, I think the announcement, it specifies categories of early years, primary education, special education, um, specialist admin and counselling. So the, the thousand is across uh, across those roles. Um, it doesn't mention secondary. It doesn't mention specialist subjects, which are really hard to recruit for um, anyway. Um, but I think the the most important most important part of this is is those higher education institutions building partnerships with the private schools here in the UAE. If the, if the partnerships are not strong. Um, and if there isn't a mutual dialogue about the needs of the parents of those schools, it'll be very difficult to implement. Well, let's have a look at the health of the private sector in general while we've got you in here, but crystal ball gazing. Uh, the 2023-2024 academic year saw a record in terms of the rate of, of growth of enrolments, 12%. It did, it did yeah, 12%, an additional 39,000 students uh, in Dubai with 365,000 students in total across the board. So again, just showing that Dubai is a is a magnet for people moving here. It is becoming or it is known as an education hub now globally. What's your Scooby sense of what we'll see this year? Um, yeah, I mean, if 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 anything above five percent is great, especially for new schools coming in. I, I don't think we're seeing too many new schools announced for September 224. So I think the existing schools will benefit from this continued growth. Uh, most of the growth is in the early years and the primary years. So I think any of those new schools that have opened over the last two years will just continue to grow. If it's another 12% year, fantastic. But it also brings a few um, headaches along the way for the new operators who are planning greenfield projects, which often take two or three years to get off the ground. Do we have enough capacity for what you see happening growth-wise? Uh, well, I know Dr. Abdullah um, at the KHDA has said that there is enough capacity uh, within the new schools at the moment. I think the devil is in the detail because quite often when we throw these numbers around, we're not just talking about the premium segment of the market. Uh, we're talking about the lower end of the market. There has been a demand for schools sub 20,000 dirham fees uh, over the last couple of years. So when you look at those types of schools, you're often talking about higher volume of students. Um, so I think the devil is in the detail and where that new supply comes in and where that pricing is, is key. What do you think we will see this year fees-wise in terms of a KHDA decision? I realise you're not speaking on their behalf, but what do we also need to see happen from a school's operator position? Yeah, so I think, you know, I think schools will seek fee increases. I think it's normal um, for, for schools to seek those increases because the, the, the biggest bulk of their costs are with their teachers. Uh, so they will continue to, to look for those increases. Um, I think there's always a threshold, and we've seen this before in the past, where if school fees keep going up, if rent keeps going up, and if families are paying up to 30% of their annual income on school fees and 30% on housing, that's when we start to get into that crunch phase um, and, and I don't think we're there yet, but I think that will certainly be on the, on the minds of the regulators here.
Sean Robeson, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, the boss of BBD Education here in the region speaking to us this morning about that decision, that decree, um, that we will be seeing a focus on emeritization in the private education sector, a target of a 1,000 UAE nationals working in the sector each year for the next four years. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Let's talk about the media industry now because over the past 24 hours, bold plans from Dubai. This has come from His Highness Sheikh Ahmed bin Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum. Now, he's second deputy ruler of Dubai, but he's also the chairman of the Dubai Media Council. And it's in that capacity that he's been speaking, approving a strategy that wants to do three things. Double the media sector's contribution to Dubai's GDP. Establish Dubai as a major global media hub and attract more foreign direct investments. How is he going to do that? Let's welcome into the studio the media entrepreneur Mazen Nahawi, founder and CEO of Karma, a Dubai-based international media organisation that employs more than a thousand people doing, among many other things, media monitoring. Mazen, good morning. Thanks for being with us. So double the contribution to GDP. Is that realistic? Challenging, but realistic. I think we're starting from a pretty low base. And if they do things right, particularly investing in technology, they have a good shot at making it happen. What do you say from a low base? Brandy and I were chatting about this earlier, and clearly we've got a horse in this race, given that we work in media. But it's not from a standing start. And I was recapping, 20 years ago, I was working for Reuters in Media City, not far from where we sit now, in the CNN building. So when it comes to attracting foreign direct investment, we have had these organi- or many of these organisations here for a couple of decades now. And the launch of Media City back in the early 2000s was a big part of that. Correct. Uh, But from a financial point of view, uh, we have roughly $20 billion in spend overall in the region. Some people think it's about $30 billion, but that's probably a bit too ambitious. $20 billion, about half of which comes from Saudi Arabia, the other half from other parts of the region. How many more international TV and radio stations are you going to bring into Dubai? I think we need a different strategy. They have talked about 21 projects and 117 KPIs. But what are they? I think we need to look into the detail. So what would you do? And, and you do sit on a number of advisory boards, the Middle East PR Association, Zayed University as well. So you're one of the people that they're going to come to and say, OK, how do we achieve this? What would be on your to-do list? Definitely taking Dubai's story from a regional one to a global one, from a media sector point of view. It's a great tourism story from a global perspective. But from a media point of view, we remain more of a regional success story than a global one. How do you take it to a global one? Clearly, investing in technology will be a big one. I think launching new media outlets or trying to give more checks to influencers won't do the trick. So when we talk about media outlets, you know, Brandy and I are old school. And to be fair, you are as well. You know, we came here to work on magazines and Brandy launched a newspaper. Here we are working for Legacy Media Radio and we're live on, on Dubai One Television as well. So that's kind of our frame of reference. What's yours? I see a world where I don't watch Sky News anymore, but I watch Alex Crawford on TikTok because I trust her. So I go to on-demand media, which I can call up at any time, but then go through different forms of AI to be able to analyze that media, share it. So I think we live in a very different world where distribution and trust are 
uh, coming together in ways which are very different to a broadsheet or a TV or a radio station. I think we need to re-engineer our entire media infrastructure for that to work. Going to bring in Paul Griffiths now. He is our co-host this morning, CEO of Dubai Airport. Paul, what's your media consumption look like? Where do you get your your news and information? Well, it's very interesting because I agree that uh, we are moving much, much more to selective online sources now rather than public media. In fact, our communication at the airport with our user base and across the world now is almost exclusively on social media. We're using TikTok, we're using Facebook, we're um, using LinkedIn, we're using all of the social media channels and finding them far more interactive with our consumers than, than any other channel. And the good thing is airports have never really had a direct relationship with a customer in the past because it's been anonymized through a relationship via the media. Now we can talk directly to our customers and they can talk to us through these interactive channels. So I, I think that's exactly the way the world is going and we will be far more selective just as we are in so many other channels you know we watch the movies we want to watch not the ones that they put on tv in front of us now so Mazen, in terms of the kind of things that we should be investing in what kind are we talking about more advertising agencies are we talking about more social media marketing content creating type agencies that are going to produce the kind of content that they can sell to, I don't know, Dubai airports or whoever it may be, or something that I'm not thinking of. I think technology, which allows anybody or any organization to become a publisher, will be very important. So technology workflows, which allow you know an oil company or a retail company to become a publisher and tell its own story, like Dubai airports, will be a key area of investment. Another one would be in LLMs. I think there's a huge amount of content. We're talking about the government of Dubai's announcement. They're sitting on an ocean of content going back generations. And that's basically sitting down on uh, the shelf being unused, being able to bring that back to life. Imagine every government department, every corporation has a goldmine of content sitting within. Bringing that to life would be good. That's why I believe Dubai's strategy should be a tech-first tech one, not an agency one. Well, what about legacy media? We've been talking earlier on about the New York Times. Brandy, you've got this story, haven't you? New York Times suing OpenAI and Microsoft for copyright infringement. Brandy, what do we know? It could be a landmark case that uh, brings other, others in. Do you know what I mean? This is New York Times, the first one to shove its head above the parapet. But will we see other media organisations follow? Uh, others are already in. They've been sued by all kinds of artists and publishers in Europe. The European Union is all over this already. I think it's a very, very big story. Uh, publishers do have a right to get paid for their content, but they also have a responsibility to make their content available. In Europe and in Asia, they've done a very good job at creating very good licensing bodies, but in places like the Middle East and in America, they haven't. So the more accessible the content, the better the partnership can be. Guy's written in on this. Morning, Guy. Thanks for your message. He says... This is all smoke and mirrors, all this media stuff. It's just Dubai making announcements to stay relevant after COP. What's really next after COP? I'm not endorsing Guy's statement, but he makes an interesting point. Mazen? Uh, Dubai is very, very relevant. Uh, be it an airport in New York or at an office in Singapore, people talk about Dubai all the time. Um, Dubai has a new story that it needs to tell. I think the old story, which was creating Dubai, this wonderful regional and global hub, has now been told. We need a different story. And I think that's a big driver behind the announcement yesterday. 
It's interesting. We had um, Sunil John in yesterday as our co-host, founder of the Asdar Public Relations, and, and he spoke about some of the stories he was involved in, building brand Dubai, for example, the Dubai Shopping Festival in the 90s, which Mohammed Alabar effectively borrowed the idea from Singapore, then the Burj Khalifa in the 2000s, the world's tallest tower, to tell the story of Dubai. Then he was involved in the, in the bids for things like Expo and, and COP. So... This idea that Dubai constantly has to have a new story is something that Sunil very much acknowledged. I agree. And Dubai will always have a new story because it's at the forefront of a regional renaissance. You have 400 million people in the Arab world who are showing up to the party after a long time of not being part of it. And Dubai is really the window to the world for these 400 million people. There will never be a story that Dubai can't tell. What about Saudi Arabia? 30 seconds. They'd like to have all of this investment, foreign direct investment in Riyadh and other cities. You can have New York and Los Angeles in America. You can have Riyadh and Dubai in the region. It's healthy competition and will be good for the world. Um, they've incidentally announced they're going to double their GDP uh, contribution from media as well last week. Mazen Nahawi, great talk to you. Appreciate you coming in this morning. Thanks Pleasure. very much indeed. He is the founder of Karma, media organization based here in Dubai. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Vikas Lakwani is with us in the studio. He's the chief revenue officer at the online trading platform CPT. Morning, Vikas. Morning, Richard. Gold knocking on the door of 2,100 bucks this morning. Three-week high. Analysts say this is on hopes of a U.S. Federal Reserve rate cut early in the new year. What do we know? Absolutely, absolutely. What we've seen so far this year has been the year of gold, to be honest. We started at about $1,800 per ounce. Uh, And the reason behind that is, uh, I would say, the geopolitical tensions, what we are looking at. You can see the Russia-Ukraine situation at the moment we are looking at uh, Israel and Gaza. Uh, we've seen still the US and China trade wars are going on. And I would say these are the main reasons and the main factors why gold has shot up and reached 2,100 levels. And it's done that despite the fact that the Federal Reserve has been hiking interest rates. Traditionally, we know higher interest rates tend to be bad for gold. The opportunity cost of holding gold increases amid higher interest rates and yet still hitting a record high just a few weeks ago. Absolutely, absolutely. One more factor to consider when the Fed uh, raises the interest rate is the inflation. So basically, if you see last year, mid last year, inflation was about 9%. And uh, the Fed, of course, wanted to raise interest rates to kind of control inflation, which, uh, to be honest, they have done quite uh, okay, if, if I say. Uh, last month, the inflation data, if you see, of, of the US was about 3%. So they've managed to get it down from 9 to 3%. The dollar index as well plays an important role uh, when it comes to gold, as gold and uh, dollar are inversely related. So the dollar index was trading at 107, uh, let's say, at the start of the year. And uh, now if we look at the dollar index, I think yesterday it was trading at about 100. So even that has gone down, which also has kind of, you know, supported the gold move. So looking at what we can expect in terms of the Federal Reserve, we've got a meeting coming up next month at the end of January. Not a lot of expectations of a rate cut then. But if we go ahead to to March of next year, they're going to second Fed meeting of the year, then a majority of punters expect that we will get a rate cut. And that's according to futures markets tracked by CMA. What are you expecting in 2024 in terms of Fed and by extension UAE interest rates? Yes. So in terms of the Fed, what we've seen so far, the Fed 
interest rate hike trajectory and let's say the speech, the previous speech uh, from Jerome Powell uh, expected three, at least three rate cuts in 2024. Uh, this, as you see, has already kind of priced in in the stock market already. Uh, we've seen uh, indices are trading high. Uh, this year, the top US indices, actually all the all the global markets. Uh, so we also are expecting at least three to four rate cuts this year. And as you know, when the rate stabilizes or when there is interest rate cut, uh, you see there is more money flowing into the markets. Uh, when it comes to gold, I mean, it, as I said, you know, it depends a lot uh, on the geopolitical scenario, uh, which, which unfortunately we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, but yeah, when it comes to the Fed rate, uh, we as well are expecting three to four cuts next year. Yeah, looking at the consensus for year end by December of next year, about three and a half percent base rate seems to be the consensus at the moment, the base rate just above five percent in the US. Now, that's good news for regular business breakfast presenters, Richard Dean and Brandy Scott, because we've both got mortgages (laughs) and our interest rates are tied to US dollar rates. What about someone who runs a multi-billion dollar capital intensive business like, for example, International Airport? Paul Griffiths has (laughs) luck would have it is with us in the studio as our guest presenter this morning. How have rising interest rates and the prospects of lower rates impacted an organisation like yours with massive long-term capital expenditure? Well, it's very interesting because you'd think this would be expressed in the demand for air travel actually falling because obviously higher interest rates means less discretionary spending. But actually, I think the effect of the pandemic in blocking a lot of people from traveling internationally is still playing out in the markets and we are seeing demand for air travel continuing to increase despite the high interest rates at the moment. I think that's probably because during the pandemic there was a lot of contraction in the supply of aviation capacity and that's still going on in several parts of the world but demand seems to be very strong supply is very short. So the impact of interest rates hasn't really affected our business too drastically one way or the other. Vikas, another commodity that does impact, of course, the aviation industry and this region is the oil market. Uh, Where are we today? Brandy Scott is our oil correspondent this morning. We're hovering around the $80 barrel mark, aren't we, for Brent crude at the moment? 79.75. What are you seeing for oil in 2024, Vikas? Uh, I'm a bit bearish, to be honest, on oil. Uh, also, I mean, again, it depends on the geopolitical scenario. Uh, but what's happening, uh, I was actually reading an interesting article yesterday uh, from uh, from Goldman Sachs, is uh, the Americans are producing 50% more oil now. So they are boosting... Than when? Sorry? 50% more than, than when? Than previous year. And okay. also compared to... So OPEC is trying to, of course cut the oil production to raise the prices. But of course, US is out of the OPEC and they are boosting the oil production. So there is decent amount of supply and the supply is going to increase in the coming months, which we believe will push down the oil prices. So, I mean, happy days for us. So when we Brent crude, $80 a barrel as we end 2023, where do you see Brent crude this time next year? I would, I'm seeing it around the 55 to $60 mark. Oh, dear, if you're a finance minister of a Gulf country, cover your ears now. Vikas, appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for coming in to join us. Vikas Lakwani is the chief revenue officer at CPT Markets here in Dubai, online trading platform. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Thank you. 
You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.